0: Welcome to Group Function, where the Pro True work together to find good solutions to worthy problems in dentistry with your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, Protruserati, I'm
1: Jazz Gulati and welcome back to another Group Function. This time with oral surgeon specialist Chris Waith. Yes, from that epic episode on how to section and elevate teeth. Like, listen, if you haven't listened to episode 85, it is huge, because it just gives so much. I wish I had that when I was just one or two years qualified. In fact, let me tell you a story. Uh, Camilla, Camilla, you posted on YouTube when you watched the video, which had like over a 1000 views now, uh, which is awesome, guys, I appreciate it very much. Now, Camilla posted on one of the comments saying that, um, thanks for you know, I discovered your podcast. uh, And thanks to this episode, uh, I was able to on my last day in dental foundation, training I was able to section elevate a tooth with confidence and it's only possible due to this episode so thanks to epic episode with Chris waith um she was able to do that which is just amazing that's the kind of feedback I absolutely love and that's the reason I keep this podcast growing so thanks so much guys who always uh, comment and like on the YouTube or if you listen on your commutes uh, I really appreciate it now this episode is um very fundamental right like dry sockets such a huge thing actually uh, lucky you I've got Chris Waith talk about three things over three group functions. We're talking dry sockets, OACs, and those dreaded tuberosity fractures. So uh, let's listen to what Chris Waithe has to say about what's the best way to prevent a dry socket. Uh, And if you are unlucky enough to have a patient who's got a dry socket, um, how can you manage it? And I'll be honest with you, I don't think I'll be doing what Chris says. Like on reflection, I don't think I'll be doing what he says because it's it's a very interesting approach. It surprised me and it, it might surprise you and you may or may not uh, do what he says. Uh, so so let me know, you know, reach out to me, the Protrusive uh, Instagram page is at Protrusive Dental. Uh, so it'd be great to connect on there. But let me know what you think about Chris's advice. And- Chris Waith, a man who needs no introduction after that podcast episode we did about extractions and how to section elevate. Uh, Chris, how are you doing, mate? I'm really
0: good. Thanks, mate.
1: I'm brilliant. And we were just chatting before I hit the record button. Um, I asked you, have you, had you seen the comments that we got on our, on our YouTube video? And it's had like over 1.2k you know, uh, views on it, which, which is great. But overall, over 4,000 dentists over the world have listened to that episode. Uh, and I sometimes think, you know, why do I do this? Why do I do what I do? And when I get comments like I saw, it was amazing. It was, this, um, I believe it was a young lady, uh, a foundation dentist who said that um, on my last day of FD... I was able to tackle a, a difficult molar and I had the confidence to section elevate and, and, and help this patient. Uh, and I wouldn't have done it if, it if I didn't listen to this episode. So just that was like, wow.
0: I mean, that's the point, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, and, and I know you've been doing some, you've been a busy boy uh, teaching these the skills to everyone. Uh, you, you're doing like a, a countrywide tour. I'll be seeing you in. Brighton uh, in a few days time for the Tubules Congress, very much looking forward to that. Uh, but today's group function, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to split it into three, three little bite-sized uh, chunks, okay? We're going to cover in these three chunks, we're going to cover dry socket, we're going to cover OACs, and we're going to cover that dreaded tuberosity fracture. So uh, Chris, I'm going to hit you straight away because people have heard your intro and your interest in uh, oral surgery uh, and how awesome you are. We know already from that episode. So if you haven't listened to um, the episode that we did with myself, Chris, and Zach, all about sectioning and elevating, that is going to profoundly improve your extractions come Monday morning. Do go back and listen to that. But but now, um, hit me, Chris, dry sockets is, is an annoying complication. It's an annoying complication. Uh, and over the years, I like to say, it's happened less and less to me, but I I couldn't honestly tell you whether it is just me getting quicker, better, cleaner extractions, or are there other things at play? How can we prevent dry sockets?
0: Oh, it's a really tough one. I think not to beat ourselves up too much, we'll never prevent it completely. It's just one of those things that you've got an open wound healing in a, a difficult environment. And some of those patients, they're always going to have the risk factors that make them more prone to it, which we can't do anything about. I love uh, having lunch across the road and watching my last patient walk out and light up after I've just spent two minutes telling them (laughs) not to smoke for as long as possible, just little things like that. Um, But I I think going back to the last podcast, the thing that we can do is look after your extractions and make it. I mean, reduce that trauma as much as you can. So sectioning a tooth rather than just putting your forceps on will always mean that the patient's starting off on the right foot. I think once you finish your extraction, just spend a minute with a curette or a Mitchell's or a dental excavator, just something in the socket, get rid of all the little bone chippings, filling chippings, tooth chippings. If there's some pathology there, get rid of the pathology. Um, and and then af- after you've got that point, you've got to just think about the blood clot, anything you can do to support that blood clot. So we were talking about this on the course this weekend that I just think I'm, I'm going to have to pick a month or two where I just suture every single socket that I put in because I, I want to know what my incident rate of dry socket will be compared to when I don't suture. I do, and you did this little experiment, yeah? You no, know, th- this is what I think I'm going to have to do because we talk about it all the time and it's, it's like when people people are saying how do I prevent it, I just think really the only things we can do is make our um, extractions less traumatic and support the blood clot um, and not necessarily put a sponge in or surgery cell or something like that but actually just suture the socket, bring the side in, try and make sure that the clot's in there. I think that's probably all we can do. There's no evidence for... Antibiotics or mouthwashes or anything like that—that that they're all hearsay. I think, with the with the exception of wisdom teeth, where there's a tiny little bit of evidence about uh, pre-op a- abs, uh, but not enough that I think it's ever changed how everyone behaves.
1: Two behaviors I'm going to share with you, Chris, that uh, some of my colleagues ha- have suggested. Uh, one, uh, by the time this episode comes out, last week, we had uh, Neki Jamal from Canada talking just exclusively about wisdom teeth. And uh, I- I've done his little uh, course and whatnot on wisdom teeth. And he's a huge fan uh, of PRF, right? Platelet-rich fibrin. Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, not every GDP is going to have access to be able to do venue puncture and actually um, make the good stuff and then put it in the socket. Uh, a, do you do that? B, any uh, any evidence you're aware of that that is a, a beneficial thing to
0: do? Uh, I don't do it. Uh, but I don't do it because there's there's not enough evidence for it to to, to prove to me that it's worth it. Um, I th- I th- PRS is a really interesting one because the breadth of how people have engaged with it is huge really from that kind of scenario, just simple, just placing it into a socket, Um, to the other end of the scale where you've got ronge patients where they're trying to use it in disease sockets, Um, to implant work where people put them in sinuses across grafts and all sorts. And it's it's one of those regimes where I think the evidence hopefully will come and it will build up and it might be that we're sitting on the cusp of something new. Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you
1: even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app nothing
0: we work so hard on this protrusive team and i know you're just gonna love it now back to the main episode purely if we're talking about dry sockets and sockets i, I think the the cost and the techniques and the time of committing to venipuncture putting it in the centrifuge
1: and the degree of invasiveness like you know in you know everyone's not going to have easy veins
0: yeah it, it puts it puts that barrier up that i think it will probably never just work into general Practice.
1: I mean, I think my my my, co- my colleague Nicky, uh he he, all he does is wisdom teeth, right? Surgical. So for him, the surgical background, implant stuff, it, he's got the kit already, and he's a big believer in it, uh, early adopter, and, and and so it makes sense. I mean, for those who are listening who don't know what this is, um, I, I guess a crude explanation will be taking out the patient's blood, putting in a spinny centrifuge machine, and, and extracting the the, the platelet rich fibrin, hence uh, the term, hence the term PRF, and it looks like this uh, yellow jelly, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. And it like for for sockets but p r f m- makes sense it's like um biologically it it's that um slightly enriched version of the factors that we want to promote healing if we're just talking about simple extraction sockets i think well we we've got hopefully our platelet plug in the socket um with or without you your PRF. So, so on a simple level for the a simple level for the GDPs out there, I think, you know, sometimes don't get sucked in by equipment and fancy techniques. It might be that yeah, wisdom teeth and your implants and your sinuses benefit from it, but actually basic extractions, I'm all for keeping it simple. I think um get your suture technique perfected suture a little bit more keep that clot stable give all your instructions that you can to the patient um, and it, as certain as I can be I think that's enough to bring your incidence down I I always think touch wood that I don't get a massive amount of dry socket um, you, you'd expect particularly the type of extractions that I, I sometimes have to take on that my incidence might be a little bit higher because they're probably a bit more traumatic. Some a, of them. Any,
1: any percentage to go by? You know, if I was saying 1%, 5%, any, any anything you can give
0: in that regard? So, so I always say that if you look at all the journals, you'd have it in your head that about 1 in 20 is right. I, I don't think ours is that high. I think mine is probably like 1 in 75 when I look at it. Now, it, it's difficult for me because I'm referral-based. I know that I probably miss some of my follow-up. So, it might be a little bit higher than that because they may go back to their GDP for it. Um, but we try and call our patients. So, we call a day later and a week later. So, we're trying to make sure that we mop up anything that's happened that we might not have known about. But I, th- I think about one in 75. And I, d- I don't do anything too special for that. I just clean the socket, make sure it's clotted, and when it needs it, suture it. So uh, let's talk about the suturing
1: in the, in this to wrap up this prevention side about you know, what, what is it potentially that we can do uh, suturing? Uh, I, I once worked with a principal who was very much like really pro like after you take out a tooth, turn that secondary healing into primary healing, like he was really going chasing the primary closure to the extent that he was actually releasing the periosteum and, and trying to cover over. Um, is there a real massive benefit of doing that? Or should we just let these sockets
0: heal by secondary intention, which they do quite routinely? Yeah, I, th- I wouldn't go as far as that. I think you, if you go to that extreme, what you're trying to gain to get your socket to heal, I think you're losing by disturbing your normal anatomy. Uh, and if you're advancing a flat, really, you may be obliterating the sulcus and making your prosthetics more difficult down the line. I'd, I'd all be for, I'd be all for trying to keep it as natural as you can. But I think if you're suturing, It's not so much that you're going for primary closure, you're just going for stability. So um, something like a horizontal mattress across the middle of your socket actually bring the edges of your socket together just so there's something physical to hold the clot in. Uh, I wouldn't be going for anything more than that, I don't think.
1: I think you summed it up well to get that stability. So you haven't got something that's too flappy or moving, you know, any moving parts, you just want to uh, secure the area. So that, that's covered it perfectly in terms of what we can do in our best intentions prevention. But like you said, it's one of those things that can't be avoided and do what we can in terms of a clean surgical technique to, to maximize our chance of not getting that dreaded phone call. Now, when we do get that dreaded phone call, and your patient has got dry socket, our duty is to help them. And I want to really help these patients. Yeah, you've seen these patients in absolute agony. So what is the, the, the gold standard way. And what is, I mean, is what we're doing? Okay, I'll just tell you what we usually do a lot of um, me and my colleagues, you know, patient comes in, sometimes we'll just rinse it out with um, uh, saline, and then just stick some good old alvagil in it. And, and that's it. Should we be doing more? Because I read some colleagues saying that, hey, you got it, you've got to make it bleed. But then I'm thinking if I've got to make it bleed, already they're in pain, then are we supposed to be numbing up these patients to, to actually, um, you know, produce a new uh, blood clot?
0: Yeah, it's a really difficult one. I mean, my way of approaching it, I'd go two ways. I'd look at what you do beforehand to get the patient prepared, your instructions afterwards, and then what you do when the patient's in the surgery. So I think beforehand, the most sensible thing is as long as they're okay taking them, uh, get their Brufen, their NSAIDs on board before the extraction, makes loads of sense because it helps your anesthetic work better, but also it means their pain level's controlled as the anesthetic's wearing off, um, which is loads more comfortable for their body rather than letting them get a big blip of pain that they then have to try and blast to control. So preemptive NSAIDs, great, get those on board if you can. After your extraction, and particularly if that patient ticks a few of the boxes, so longer, more difficult extraction, mandibular, uh, ladies more than men, uh, oral contraceptive, the uh, pre-existing infection, all of those that I'm ticking, I think, right, just spend a couple of minutes now with this patient and just say, so this is what I think is normal this is what I think might be abnormal. And so two, three days down the line, any increase of pain, struggling more with your analgesia, give us a call. But I'll try and hammer home how important it is for them to respect taking the full dose of analgesia. So the paracetamol and ibuprofen for a few days so that when they call, if they're not doing that, actually, I might just hammer that home again and say, right, so This is the important, but you need to take your paracetamol and your ibuprofen regularly um, because a lot of the patients just getting that analgesic regime correct will be what they need without me putting my hands in the mouth or doing anything.
1: I think that's so true. Because a lot of people are like me, I'm like really anti painkillers, I I, I have to be like literally having the worst man flu ever, or the worst hangover ever before I even reach for paracetamol. Uh, But a lot of our patients, you know, they're they're the same. So for whenever I, you know, when I had done my shoulder and I literally was on painkillers for one day, but I'm pretty sure my my, my orthopedic guy uh, probably wanted me to take it for longer. So you're right, you're totally right just to reinforce that. uh, And the regimen I like to uh, recommend is uh, 600 ibuprofen, 600 milligrams ibuprofen and a gram of paracetamol. Uh, and then to, to even taper that um, ibuprofen up if needs be in his worst case. Now I'm thinking more irreversible pitis to 800 milligrams, but make sure you eat something beforehand. Uh, but then obviously don't exceed the four grams for, during the day for, for paracetamol. A- any comments on, on this regimen?
0: Yeah, I mean, there are two things. One is just from a pure effectiveness point of view, but one psychological for the patient. Like from an effect in a, effectiveness point of view, if you've got a uh, dry socket, and that severe pain with it, you do need to up, up the game with the analgesics, I think at least 400 milligrams of ibuprofen, but probably probably 600. Um, four times a day, just make sure they're having some food later on in the evening if they're taking some before bed. Um, I, th- I think as as well as that, If you start to get to 600 milligrams, which is a dose really that we can prescribe, rather than saying to them, oh, go to the counter. Psychologically, a lot of patients are tuned in to come into you for a prescription because in the past they will have just been given some antibiotics, which is wrong. Um, But you can still give them the prescription to say, well, actually, you do need a stronger medicine and this is it but it's analgesics and we we have loads of patients that come in for it. And I mean, there is a little bit of evidence that um, there's some kind of bacterial component, but a dry socket isn't an infection. Um, So it's trying to say to somebody, and I mean, using your analogy, but not so much shoulder, I, I just say twisted ankle. It's like if you've twisted your ankle, it's really sore, but it's very hard not to aggravate it because you've got to walk on it. So you'll be taking painkillers for a few days and then you'll rest it a little bit more when you can. If I gave you antibiotics on that day when you twisted it, a week down the line, your ankle would feel better, but it's not the antibiotics. It's just the fact that your soreness and swelling is gone and you've not been walking on it. And this is the same in your mouth. The difficulty is that every time you speak, every time you eat, you're aggravating the socket. You've just got to respect the fact that it takes some time for those analgesics to work. But if I gave you antibiotics on day one and you're better in a week, it's not the antibiotics that have done that. It's just mother nature. It's just nature taking care of your socket and you getting over that kind of severe spell. The other thing I say is about picking scabs. Is It's like, I mean, our youngest right now has a massive sore on his knee because he's had this scab for a, about five weeks and he just keeps picking it. And, you know, you try and say to them, just stop it, it won't heal properly. And that's dry socket. And It's like, you know, your scab's gone, your clot's gone out of the socket. Uh, so now you've got that uh, horrible sore spot underneath which isn't fully healed, only it's worse for you because it's in your jaw, it's not even your skin. So that's why it's so sore. So that if they're coming and, you know, people talk about um, dressings, I, I wouldn't necessarily jump into dressing something unless they were really struggling, you know, quality of life, struggling to sleep, struggling to function. And they just need something to break that pain cycle so that then their analgesics are working better. I think for that patient, that's when I'd irrigate with some saline and put some alvea gel in. I think for everybody else, I would try if they're on board just to say you know what, you're going to need your analgesics for a little longer. Uh, but in you know, seven to 14 days, it will be better, no matter what we do, whether we dress it or not, it's just whether you can live with that timeframe. Uh,
1: this is this is when they're in the chest. So this is when they've come to see you. So you're telling me that patients will come see you. And uh, for dry socket, you're not always reaching for that albagil uh, and the rinse. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah 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 a lot wow, of the time. okay that's another shock to me now just like you shot me in the last episode about um, you know using the fast handpiece, to section teeth this is another shock because it, it's so ingrained in what we were taught and and the way all my colleagues practice it's like you know okay
0: dry socket equals and even the nurses are primed for it oh we have got a dry socket let me get the algidol ready you know yeah and and don't get me wrong it's definitely got its place but I won't necessarily jump on it straight away and like I don't I don't want to sound too heartless with it but um like my old MaxFacts consultant used to say, he was like, you know, in two weeks, your dry socket will be healed whether you've dressed it or not. Very true. It's just which path you take to get there. So if their analgesic control's doable and if they can live with it, actually just let Mother Nature take care of that one. It's when their analgesics aren't really covering it and the suffering, we just need to break that pain cycle before it gets too bad. Uh, those are the ones that I'll irrigate and dress and like, I mean, what you said, for the people who aren't already saline instead of corcidil, um shouldn't be putting Corsidil in sockets because there have been a couple of anaphylactic deaths with off-licensed use of chlorhexidine. So irrigating with saline. Part of my reason for changing as well is that alvagil years ago changed to alvegil, which isn't, I, I don't think, as effective because they've taken out the butambum and the iodophore um, and those are kind of local anaesthetic components which you definitely used to see a big difference almost straight away when you uh, applied it. My take on it is um, if they really need that, that help, it's there for them. If they don't though, we're just putting a foreign body into the socket while it's trying to heal and I'm all for trying to avoid Doing that because I think sometimes you're actually you delaying the healing a little bit more, and we're really we're trying to speed it up. I, I can see why people say about trying to promote some bleeding and mm, getting it yeah. to up again. I, I I don't do that, but I can see the logic with it, and I, I think it probably comes down to your your patient again. Um, these these patients with mandibular teeth who smoke you take the tooth out and the socket doesn't bleed um, there that first time while they're anesthetized that's when you make it bleed go to town on the socket a little bit and try and encourage <laughs> it. To bleed. then suture it and keep the clot there i think if you don't do that and then then they come back with dry socket well that was almost inevitable for you to have to numb them up again and then go to town on the socket, I think, oh, we could have maybe done that last time. But there's also there's a little thing in the back of my head that I think, you know, we we don't completely understand the pathogenesis of this, that there are all these little elements that we think play a factor. And I think the worst thing that could happen, and I mean, I, I've been intrigued if anybody does do this routinely, I'd love to know how many of those people come back with a second dry socket because that clot breaks down because i just think it's the same pe- person and the same risk factors and the same socket and all you know wh- what if we change putting that second clot in i can see why though because there's a physical um a physical barrier to the socket and it's the one that's supposed to be there rather than alvea gel or something like that and i think even for alvea gel, we still sometimes have to anesthetize the patient because it's so sore to irrigate and place it so It might be that if we're anesthetizing, does it make more sense to try and make it bleed again? Um, I don't think there's a wrong or a right answer there, but I'm I'm much more in favor of natural healing than unnatural healing. Um, And like I said, I'm I'm not trying to be mean to my patients. (laughs) I was like, I'm I'm just trying to get them on board with my my way of thinking. And I, th- I think whenever we see see on the groups, there are loads of people who I think numb people up and cure the socket to make it bleed again. And I, d- I don't think you'd do that unless you've been doing it for a long time and it worked for you. Um, no, it, that's only anecdotal, I'd love to like no figures on it, but I, th- I think if people do that, they must know that for them it works. For For me, doing nothing works a lot. <laughs>
1: I, I've definitely learned something there, and even about the whole Alvo Jill versus Alvio Jill, Like, wow, I didn't even realize that they took away the good stuff that Iodoform and the Butamben. This is news to me. You know, uh, I didn't get that memo. So there we are. Uh, I definitely have a, I definitely have less faith in the stuff that's in our drawers at the moment now. And maybe now I think I might do the same thing as you uh, and, and just give them comforting advice. Uh, make sure they're on the correct. Um, analgesic regimen and some reassurance. So that, that, that is very useful. And I'll catch you in the next couple of group functions coming very soon.